I heard a story this past week about a man. His name was Joe. And Joe was a good Christian man, and he lived in California, and he had given his whole life to following God. He was dedicated to God. And he was walking one day on the coast in California, meditating and thinking about God, and he heard a voice from heaven say, Joe. And he stopped and he said, Lord, is that you? He said, yes. He said, Joe, I've been thinking about how much you love me and how good you've been and how you live your life according to my will and my word. And, you know, I've been thinking about that and I've decided I'm going to give you anything that you ask for. So you just come up with what you'd like and I'm going to give it to you. Joe thought for a second and then he said, Lord, you know, I've always wanted to go to Hawaii. But uh, I'm afraid of flying and I'm afraid of the water. So, Lord, could you maybe build me a bridge from here, California, to Hawaii? And then I'll get to go down there and I'll get to walk those black sand beaches and enjoy this beautiful place you've created. There was a pause and God finally answered and said, Joe, look, when I, when I was telling you to, you know, anything you wanted, I meant anything that's logistically feasible. You're, you're talking about a 2,000 mile bridge here. You know, so that means every 100 miles or so I've got to uh, put gas and uh, uh, food courts and, and then every, you know, so often people can't drive 2,000 miles in a day, so, you know, I've got to have platforms with hotels and motels and campgrounds and and then, of course, every so often I've got to have a city platform and, and then somehow I, I've got to get power out to all these places and then sewer and, you know, Joe, this is just logistically, it, it, it's not feasible. So, you know, can you, can you come up with something else? And Joe thought for a few minutes and he goes, I know. Lord, I've always struggled with understanding a woman. And my love life suffered because of it. And so if you could somehow make it to where I can understand a woman and what she thinks in her heart and how she feels and what she wants and what she likes and what she doesn't like, that would just be so great. I could Then my love life would be better. So yeah, that's what I want. Make, make it so I can understand a woman. There was a pause in heaven. And God finally spoke up and He said, Joe... Do you want that bridge to be one lane or two lanes? <laughs> if you didn't like that, I got that from Johnny. For the last five weeks, we've been dealing with a series called Understanding God. This is the last lesson in that series. Understanding God is difficult, I told you when we started the series. But God has revealed Himself in His Word. And it would be indifferent on our part if we didn't try to understand Him. God wants us to know Him. He wants us to understand Him to the best of our ability. Jesus, the night before His crucifixion, prayed in the garden. And He prayed in John 17 and verse 3, This is life eternal, that they may know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. In Colossians the third chapter, verse 1 and verse 2, Paul said, if you then are risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. If we set our affection on things above, that's where God is. That's where Christ is. That's where the Spirit of God dwells. 
we'll have to know God to some degree. We'll have to understand Him to some extent. In Philippians, the third chapter, in verse 7 through 10, Paul is talking about himself. He says, What things were gained to me, those things I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God and is by faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. God wants us to know Him. God wants us to know Christ. God wants us to know His Spirit. Now, the Greek word for know is the Greek word gnosko. It means to know absolutely, to understand, to comprehend. Now, in the 20th and the 21st century, we've become somewhat lazy-minded. We've, in many ways, become TV zombies. Thinking about God, understanding God is going to take us to think deeply, to study, to contemplate, and to pray. God wants that. He wants us to know Him. Now, in this series of understanding God, let me remind you where we've been very quickly. We've talked about the incomprehensibility of God, the eternality of God, the trinity of God, the sovereignty of God, the infinitude of God, the transcendence of God, the self-existence of God, the self-sufficiency of God, the omniscience of God, the omnipotence of God, the omnipresence of God, the immutability of God, the faithfulness of God, the goodness of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, all of those things we've talked about. Today we'll finish with the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, and the justice of God. Today's lesson, I believe, is probably of the series one of the most, if not the most important. Now, though the Bible says God is love, today's lesson, I believe, is the foundational stones of God's character. Psalms 89 and verse 14 says, Justice and judgment are the habitation of thy throne. The American Standard ESV and the NASV says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of thy throne. In Psalms 47, verse 7 and verse 8, the psalmist said, God sitteth upon the throne of His holiness. In those two verses, we see all three points of this lesson. Righteousness, holiness, and justice. And let me tell you something. If we do not understand the holiness and the righteousness and the justice of God, we will never, never understand the doctrine of hell. Now, once more, then, I ask you to dive with me into this deep theological river and try with me to understand God based on what God has revealed about Himself. This is important because our insight and understanding of God will almost always chart our spiritual course and will motivate us to pursue God all the days of our life. So, as we come down to this last lesson in understanding God, one of the last things we need to understand about God is the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is connected closely to God's justice. Now, our first glimpse of God's righteousness I'm going to say is Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, some people may say, well, what about Noah? Well, yeah, Noah is God's righteousness. It's not stated clearly there, but obviously there's the judgment of God and there is man's unrighteousness that God deals with. But the reason I want to go to Sodom and Gomorrah is because Abraham specifically 
addresses the issue of righteousness with God here. Now, if you remember the story, God showed up in human form. This is a Christophany. Uh, and two angels were with him. They looked like humans, but uh, God spoke another promise concerning his giving Abraham a son in his old age. And then God set his face towards Sodom. And Abraham knew what was going to happen in Sodom, that God was going there to destroy the city. So Abraham begins to talk with God concerning righteousness, concerning doing what's right. And in Genesis 18, verses 23 through 26, the Bible says Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Preadventure there be fifty righteous within the city. Wilt thou also destroy and not spare the place for the fifty righteous that are therein? That be far from thee to do after this matter, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked. That be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare all that place for their sakes. Now Abraham here is pointing out to God what righteousness is, which I almost think is funny. But he's saying, shall not the judge of the earth do right? God's righteousness is connected to his justice. We need to remember that. The possibility for God to do something wrong is zero percent. God can never do anything that is wrong. Job 34 verse 12 says, Yea, surely God will not do wickedly, neither will the Almighty pervert judgment. The message translates that passage like this, It's impossible for God to do anything wicked for the Mighty One to subvert justice. The Good News Bible says, Almighty God does not do evil. He is never unjust to anyone. Now, some people may dare to point in God's direction and actually say, but what about those times when God commanded the slaughter of men and women and children in the Old Testament? That happens on a number of occasions. What about those times? That surely can't be right. They point their finite fingers toward an infinite God and make that accusation. First, let me briefly defend God's position. First, God is good. He has the right to take life at any time because He is Creator. That's an absolute. Second, God is protective of His people. In this case, it was the nation of Israel. In Deuteronomy 20, verses 16 through 18, Moses says, But of the cities of these peoples which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall not let nothing that breathes remain alive, but you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God has commanded you, lest they teach you to do according to all their abominations which they have done for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. The reason God wanted these nations to be completely and utterly destroyed is because their influence would creep into the nation of Israel and Israel would turn away from God. Because Israel did not utterly destroy all these nations when they entered into the promised land, that in fact happened. Third, I'll remind you that God sees everything from an eternal point of view. These children of these unrighteous, idolatrous nations would end up growing up and being just like their parents. But God, looking at things from an eternal point of view, if they die before they reach an age of accountability, they go to be with Him. Now, that may answer your question, it may not. But regardless of whether it does, 
God is righteous. And even though we may not comprehend His ways, He is always right. He can never do wrong. The Bible makes God's righteousness clear. Psalms 9 and verse 8, He shall judge the world in righteousness, and He shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. Psalms the 11th chapter, verses 4 through 7, The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous. But the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he shall rain coals, fire and brimstone and burning winds shall be the portion of their cup. But the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. Psalm 71 and verse 19, And your righteousness, O God, is very high. You have done great things, O God, who is like you. The Hebrew word for righteousness means to cut straight. The Bible basically is saying that God always cuts straight. He is always straight in His actions. He is always right in His actions. He cannot be wrong. The word righteous or righteousness appears 135 times in just the book of Psalms. And most of those times it is in reference to God. The New Testament is not silent in reference to the righteousness of God. After Acts 17 and verse 30 where God says that all men must repent. He commands all men everywhere to repent. It says because He has appointed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness. By that man whom He hath ordained. He hath given assurance of this to all by raising Him from the dead. In 1 John the second chapter in verse 1. John said, My little children, these things I write unto you that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Revelation 16, verse 5 and verse 7 says, And I heard the angel of the water saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things. And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. As Christians, as believers and followers of God, we should seek God's righteousness. The rightness that God has should be a goal in our life. One of the highest goals, if not the highest goal. Matthew 6 and verse 33 says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all of these things shall be added unto you. 1 John the third chapter in verse 10 says, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. In Acts the tenth chapter in verse 35, the Bible says, In every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Now, obviously, you and I will never completely achieve flawless and faultless righteousness. I want to ask the question, do we even try? Is our priority list the same as God's priority list? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Do we stand up for what's right? Do we speak up for what's right? Do we step up and do what's right? That's righteousness. John said, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. We need to wake up. As a people, as a believer in God, as believers in Christ, we need to awake. 1 Corinthians 15.34 Awake to righteousness and sin not. 
We need to quit copping out. We, we sometimes cop out. We, oh, we're just going to sin. We're just going to sin. No, we don't always have to sin. We can live righteous lives. God would not command us to do something that is impossible for us to do. Will we do it flawlessly? No. Will we do it without any kind of fault whatsoever? Absolutely not. But we can live righteous lives. God commands us to do so. Christians are imputed. With God's righteousness. Now that doesn't mean we don't try. But think about this. For the Christian, God in His mercy withholds what we deserve. We deserve wrath, anger, and vengeance. God in His grace gives what we do not deserve. Forgiveness and grace. And God in His righteousness imparts what we need. Righteousness. In order to stand before Him. And be justified. We need righteousness. Now, I believe the psalmist actually had a glimpse of this. In Psalm 17 and verse 15, he says, As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. I believe he was talking about his awaking from the grave. And being imputed with righteousness. Being made righteous. In Psalms 23, that famous psalm that you hear so often at funerals. In verse 3, He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His namesake. Psalms 24 and verse 5, He shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation. This is something He receives from God. It's not something He does, it's something He receives. In Romans the 5th chapter and verse 19, He says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. And in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21 For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. God remakes us in the image of His Son by putting us into His Son and hiding us in Christ. God is righteous. Second, we must understand the holiness of God. The holiness of God is the foundation of who and what God is. The Bible says that God is love, 1 John 4 verse 8 and also verse 16. Yet no place in Scripture do burning seraphim, the burning ones, fly above the throne of God and shout, Love, love, love is the Lord of hosts. But they do fly above His throne and proclaim, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The Bible says that holy is the name of God. Psalms 111, 7-9, The works of His hands are truth and judgment. All His commandments are sure. They stand fast forever and ever and are done in truth and uprightness. He sent redemption unto His people. He hath commanded His covenant forever. Holy and reverend is His name. That's why I don't want people calling me reverend. That's His name. Isaiah 57 and verse 15 For thus saith the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Everything about God is holy. Everything about Him. Moses, when he came into the presence of God at the burning bush, was told by God to do not draw near to this place. Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. The place was holy, not because of the ground, but because of who was there, God. The mercy seat which was placed in what was called the most holy place in the tabernacle as well as in the temple, was called the most holy place because that was where God was. Understanding that God is holy is going to do us very 
little good if we fail to understand what the holiness of God actually means. Too often people hear words like sanctification and reconciliation and justification and we have a vague understanding of that word, but you know, those are preacher words and I don't really have to understand them that way. Let me tell you something. You need to understand holiness. You can miss sanctification. You can miss reconciliation. You can miss justification. But if you miss God's holiness, you will never understand God's justice, not until you get there. Tozer has this to say. He says, quite literally, a new channel must be cut through the desert of our minds to allow the sweet waters of truth that will heal our great sickness to flow in. We cannot grasp the true meaning of the divine holiness by thinking of someone or something very pure and then raising the concept to the highest degree we are capable of. God's holiness is not simply the best we know, infinitely bettered. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible and unattainable. The natural man is blind to it. He may fear God's power. And admire his wisdom, but his holiness he cannot even imagine. The word in the Hebrew for holy is the word kadash. It means separate, pure, devoted. The word in the Greek is hagios. It means an awful thing. Not awful in the sense of bad, but awful in the sense of terrifying. Sacred. Pure, blameless. The purity and the sacredness and the presence of God would actually cause a human being, a mortal, to die. Exodus 33 and verse 20 says, By God Himself, thou canst not see my face, and there shall no man see me and live. Now, in the Old Testament, a number of holy men were given the privilege, and a couple in the New Testament, of seeing God or seeing visions of God. Every single one of those men were overwhelmed when they came in contact with this holy being. Isaiah is the first one. In Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 5, he says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. The train of His robe did fill the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his faith, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of Him that cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of host. And Ezekiel, the Bible says Ezekiel fell on his face when he saw visions of God. Ezekiel 1, 28. The prophet Daniel says that he fell to the ground and fainted when he heard the voice of the Holy One. Daniel 8, verse 17 and 18. John, the apostle that Jesus loved, the disciple that Jesus loved. When he was seeing visions in the Revelation, he saw the second person of the Godhead and he fainted. Revelation 1, 17 and 18, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying to me, be not afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys to hell and death. 
Now let me ask a question. Is there anyone in here that would dare say that you are as consecrated and dedicated as Isaiah? Is there anyone here who would say that I have the privilege of being like Ezekiel? Is there anyone who has the faith of Daniel who prayed every day even though they would throw him in a lion's den? Is there anyone that can boast being the disciple whom Jesus loved uniquely and in a very special way? And would go to a cauldron of burning oil but would not die? Is there anyone in here who would claim that kind of faith of these men, these holy men of God? Every single one of these holy men when they came into the presence of God, hit the ground. With the exception of Isaiah, he doesn't say he fell down, but he says, woe is me. We are to be holy. Followers of God must seek holiness. Let me read from Tozer again. Holy is the way God is. To be holy, He does not conform to a standard. He is that standard. He is absolutely holy with an infinite, incomprehensible fullness of purity that is incapable of being other than it is. Because He is holy, His attributes are holy. That is, whatever we think of as belonging to God must be thought of as holy. God is holy with an absolute holiness that knows no degrees. And this He cannot impart to His creatures. But there is a relative and contingent holiness which He shares with angel and seraphim in heaven and with redeemed men on earth as their preparation for heaven. This holiness God can and does impart to His children. He shares it with them by imputation and impartation. And because He has made it available to them through the blood of the Lamb, He requires it of them. God calls us to be holy. In Leviticus, the 20th chapter and verse 7 he said, Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Now I want you to notice something. He did not say be holy as I am holy. That would be impossible for us. We could never achieve that holiness. We have a stain of sin. When Peter quotes that passage, he says, Be holy for I am holy. The reason we are to seek holiness and pursue it is because the one we adore, the one we love, the one we follow is holy. We are striving to be like Him. Our holiness must consist of lives that are separated to God and dedicated to His purpose. This is more than a halo. This is more than a halo. We are called to live holy lives as Christians. Romans 12 and verse 1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Ephesians 1 and verse 3 and verse 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, But you are a chosen generation. He's talking to the church. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A peculiar people. That you should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. The Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 12 and verse 14, Follow peace with all men, and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Holiness is a part of God's people. It must be lives dedicated and devoted to God, separated and apart. It's more than a halo. You must be perfectly holy 
to cohabitate with a holy God. Now let me tell you, you can't get there from here. You can't get there from here. God fixes that. Holiness is also imputed and imparted to us. We are given perfect holiness. We strive for it. And then God makes up the difference and gives us what we need. Ephesians 5, verse 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wife, even as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it, that He might sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of water by the Word, that He might present it to Himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Colossians 1, and verse 20 through 22 It says, And having made peace through the blood of His cross, by Him to reconcile all things unto Himself. By Him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you, that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath He reconciled in the body of His flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in His sight. God is holy. And so we must also be, if we are to dwell with a holy and righteous God, heaven shouts. The angels shout, the Word of God shouts to its highest voice, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty who is, who was, and who is to come. Holiness is imputed by God to us. Now we come down to the last attribute of God and that's the justice of God. Now God's justice is not always understood, but God's justice is true. Justice and righteousness are the foundation of God's character. Psalms 89 and verse 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Let me tell you something, when you interweave the holiness of God, and the sovereignty of God, and the omnipotence of God, and the omniscience of God, His justice is a fearful thing. Because of His holiness, I stand before Him undone in His presence, in sin, if I have not come to Christ. Because of His sovereignty, He has decreed that there will be a judgment day in which everyone will stand before Him and give an account. Because of His omnipotence, He has the power to accomplish such a judgment day. And because of His omniscience, He knows the very thoughts of our hearts. There's no way we're going to get around it by telling fibs or lies. He knows everything we've ever done. He knows everything we've ever thought. In and of myself, when I think about that, it is woe unto me. Like Isaiah, I crumble before our holy God. Like those in the book of Revelation, the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of His wrath has come. And who is able to stand? You see, in and of ourselves, if we stand before God sinful, we are separated from God. There's no question about it. God's justice demands such. He is so holy, He cannot cohabitate with sin. He cannot even look upon sin. According to Habakkuk 1 and verse 13, you are purer eyes to behold evil. You cannot look upon wickedness. Sin demands separation. It demands death. Ezekiel 18 and verse 20, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Jesus would say to the religious leaders of that day who were hypocrites and would not believe in Him. He said, I said therefore unto you that you shall die in your sins. If you believe not that I am He, you shall die in your sins. Romans 3 and verse 23, Paul said, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Chapter 6 and verse 23, he says, The wages of sin is death. 
Your sin demands the justice of God. God cannot compromise Himself. He cannot compromise His holiness or His righteousness or His justice and ignore sin. That would be impossible. The Bible says it is impossible for God to lie. It is morally impossible for God to do something or say something that's wrong. It would be impossible for God to set aside His moral character and allow sin to go undealt with. He is the judge of all the earth. He must do right. Now God has only two ways of dealing with sin. Just two. The first one is hell. Now when I say first, I don't mean that God wants anyone to go there. On the contrary, God doesn't want anyone to go to hell. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, according to 2 Peter 3 and verse 9. Hell is a hard concept for most people to understand. I'll be honest with you, I struggle with it myself. But the Bible says hell is a real place, and it is there God will separate evil from His creation. Hell is a place that is prepared for rebellious angels, the devil and his angels, according to Matthew 25, 41. Then he shall say to those on his left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell was not made for you. It was not made for me. It was not made for humans. It was made for the devil and his angels. If anyone chooses to rebel against God, against His Word, against His will, then he will be sent to this place along with the devil and his angels. The sad thing is most people will end up there. Luke 13 and verse 24, Strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. Matthew 7 verse 13 and 14, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate. Narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. This is a place of God's wrath. A place of God's anger. A place of God's vengeance. Ten verses after the beloved passage, John 3 and verse 16, Jesus said, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Romans 2 verse 5 and verse 6, But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasures up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. Revelation 6 and verse 17, For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Revelation 14, 10 and 11, The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of His indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they shall have no rest day nor night. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-9 And you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Let me tell you something. Hell is real. The Bible says hell is real. If Christ was who He said He was and if His words were from God, He spoke of it more than any other person. Why? Because He was hateful? No, because He loved Now you may ask the question, how does God's love, how does God's mercy, how does God's grace work with this idea of hell? Do you remember when we talked about the omnipotence of God? I don't know if you remember it, but I talked about the fact that not everything is subject to power. The Bible says God cannot lie. That is not subject to power. God could surely put together words that were untrue, but it would be against His moral character. It is impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for Him to speak an untruth. So that's not subject to omnipotence. It's not subject to power. If you remember also, we talked about our freedom of choice. The Bible says that you and I, because God sovereignly decreed, we have freedom of choice. 
And God does not overrule our choice with His omnipotence. Well, the same thing's true when it comes to His love, His grace, and His mercy. They will not overwhelm your right to choose. If you go to hell, it will be because you chose to set aside God's love. You chose to set aside His mercy. You chose to set aside His grace. It will be because you have rebelled against God all of your life, as did the devil and his angels, and you have rejected His love, mercy, and grace. Your fate will be with those fallen beings eternally. You will die in your sins. And God's love, because you set it aside, because you set aside His mercy, because you set aside His grace, God will honor your choice. And then He Himself will set aside His love, His mercy, and His grace. If you take that last breath and you have not been obedient to the gospel of Christ, you will die lost in your sins. And God will honor your choice in rebelling and rejecting Him. And He... And his disposition toward you will change from a child that could come to me and be redeemed to an enemy forever. And that only leaves God's justice. If you set aside his mercy and his grace, it only leaves his justice. The other way that God deals with sin is the cross. He deals with sin at the cross. Christ went to the cross to satisfy the justice of God. Now some people look at the cross and they see the love of God. That's right. But also we must be able to see the justice of God. Bear with me. We're not long. I know I'm running just a touch over. Isaiah 53 verse 5 and verse 6 says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. And with His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. The Lord hath laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53, 10 and 11. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise Him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquity. God saves us from himself, from his justice by putting us in Christ. Hiding us in Christ. Romans 5 and verse 9. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 Wait for the Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 9 God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 3 and verse 3 But ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. God saves you from His wrath by hiding you in His Son and hiding the Son in Him. So His justice is satisfied at the cross. If you leave here and you forget everything I've said, don't forget this. The cross and hell are built on the same foundation. God's justice. If Jesus does not take away your sins, you will take away your sins from a loving God who tried to save you to a horrible place called hell and you will receive the wrath and the anger of God. God only deals with sin in two ways. Hell and the cross. You choose which will be yours. Let me close with this. If you die lost, it will be because you have trodden underfoot the love of God. The grace of God, the mercy of God, the cross of Christ, the word of God, the church of God, and the spirit of God. God has erected seven barriers to stop you from going to hell and experiencing his justice. Seven things. If you die lost, it will be because you set aside the love of God. 
You set aside the grace of God, the mercy of God, the cross of Christ, the Word of God, the church of God, and the Spirit of God. You set all of those things aside. You climbed over them to get to your destiny. God is God. He is just. He is holy. He is righteous. And when we stand before Him, you may not understand it here, I may not understand it here, but I am sure of this. Every single one of us will bow before Him. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess that Christ Jesus is Lord. You're on this side of eternity. The cross is an accomplished fact. Forgiveness is there. You just have to come to Him. Or you can reject it. And the love of God will be set aside. The mercy of God will be set aside. The grace of God will be set aside. All that will be left for you is the justice of God. And you don't want it. God is good. How did He step out of heaven and go to a cross? He didn't have to. But He did. I believe on the cross, Christ endured the pains of the damned. In those hours associated with the cross, He, because of His infinite character, because of His infinite being, was able to satisfy infinite justice and express infinite love. But you have to come to Him. God will not override your choice. He will not overpower you. You choose.